Hello, and welcome to the Take is Directed podcast. I'm Janet Fleischman, Senior Associate with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a critical issue that affects women and communities around the world and where the U.S. could play an important leadership role, the linkages between women's economic empowerment and their access to women's health services, especially maternal health and family planning. We've seen a rising bipartisan interest in women's economic empowerment based on data about the benefits for alleviating poverty and advancing economic growth. But to participate in the labor force, women need to be healthy and they need to be able to decide the timing and spacing of their pregnancies. This is part of a new initiative that we've recently undertaken at CSIS called the CSIS Women's Health Policy Forum, which seeks to ensure continued bipartisan support for U.S. investments in women's global health and to generate consensus around U.S. policy options. This forum builds on our earlier work, notably the CSIS Task Force on Women's and Family Health, which was a bipartisan project that called for a new U.S. approach to advancing global health and economic opportunity by focusing on adolescent girls and young women in 13 target countries. We're delighted to be joined today by two leading figures in global health and development who each bring exceptional experience to this topic and both of whom participated in the launch of our Women's Health Policy Forum. Let me first introduce Margaret Schuler, Senior Vice President in the International Programs Group at World Vision. World Vision is a faith-based humanitarian aid, development, and advocacy organization. Prior to this role, she was World Vision's regional vice president in East Africa, where she oversaw programs in nine countries. Our next guest is David Ray, vice president for policy and advocacy for CARE USA and president of CARE Action Now. In his many years at CARE in a variety of roles, he has been the director of global advocacy and senior assistant to the president for CARE International. So thank you both so much for joining us. Margaret, let's begin with you. You have spoken eloquently about what your years in the field have taught you about how economic empowerment for women is critical to improve the well-being of women, children, households, and communities. So can you explain the importance of creating an enabling environment for women through a broader multi-sectoral approach that links economic empowerment with access to women's health services? Thank you so much, Janet. It's wonderful to be here. And I, as you mentioned, I personally spent 25 years working in the international development business, many of which have been spent in countries such as Ethiopia, Tanzania, Kenya, and Uganda, where economic empowerment of women is crucial to improving the well-being of children, households, and communities. And so over those years, I've learned a lot. Um, it's it's important to to learn lessons as you as you work in the field and and engage with communities. And what's become clear to me is that as we seek to improve the empowerment and economic development of women, we require a multi pronged approach. First, we must create an enabling environment, as you mentioned, for women's economic empowerment. And what that means is that we need to work with governments, communities, faith leaders, and community members to open space for women to thrive. This is the only way we're going to be successful in this effort. Another key component that I've found that's critical is to work with women directly to build their skills and resources in order to ensure that they are empowered and can thrive. 
But something that's not always as readily obvious and that's been very critical in my understanding over the years of how to empower and strengthen women is the role that maternal child health and nutrition and health services for women of reproductive age play in creating a key precondition for women to thrive. It's really um, it's really a multi-pronged approach that's needed, both in terms of strengthening and empowering women economically, but also to ensure their health, um, uh, strong, uh, strong health outcomes in order to ensure that they thrive. Exactly. And David, many of us are familiar with CARE's learning tours, where you take policymakers and others to the countries that CARE is working in to see for themselves what's actually happening on the ground and to hear, as Margaret was saying, from the women directly about what matters and what makes these programs sustainable. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you've learned through that process with CARE's learning tours about the enabling environment and the ingredients for sustainability? Sure. Thanks, Janet. Now, uh, we've seen evidence of that over and over again. There's one particular case I would I would relate to you from a trip that we took in 2016 with a group of faith leaders led by former Senator Bill Frist to look at exactly these kinds of issues. The delegation uh, visited a village about an hour outside of Port-au-Prince where they met with a mother and a daughter who shared their story with the group. Uh, the mother's name was Irma Seal Joseph, and, and Irma Seal was uh, in her mid-50s at that time. She had 10 children uh, and had become pregnant in secondary school as a, as a young girl and had had to drop out her husband had over the years struggled to find work and continued to to that time. And they struggled collectively to be able to adequately feed and school their children. She had, as she recounted it, had never heard about how to, to time and space pregnancies. And until there was a clinic that opened up a, about a 10-minute walk away and that also had a group of community health workers who made visits around the community she learned at that point late in her life uh, about the ways in which uh, the families could decide to, to time and space their pregnancies. And, and she made sure that her daughters learned about that, her daughters and sons both. But we happened to meet, the group happened to meet with one of her daughters, a 30-year-old uh, named Raphael, who, who told the group that she had, because she had had learned about uh, how she could go about choosing if and when and how many children to have, had stayed in school. She was gone through university. Uh, she wanted to go on to graduate school. She wanted to have kids someday, but she was waiting because she wanted first to be able to know that she was in a position that she could actually feed the children that she was going to have. I thought it was a, actually a really compelling illustration of exactly the kinds of issues that we're talking about here today. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear the examples of what you've seen on the ground and how some of these issues relate to, for example, adolescent girls and young women who are often uh, – their their goals for education, for economic empowerment are often undermined by pressures to marry early, start having children early, um, leading them into a situation where economic empowerment becomes a fairly distant prospect for them. 
I wonder, Margaret, if you could talk to us a little bit about what you've seen in terms of the role of faith communities in addressing this broader set of issues. You know, we talked earlier about creating an enabling environment, and in many countries, in many of the countries that I mentioned earlier, the faith leaders in those communities are critical. The faith leaders of all faiths are critical in helping to drive the direction uh, of things in terms of behavior change, in terms of um, girls' education, in terms of their constituents uh, accessing health services. And so World Vision works a lot with different faith leaders of all faiths to uh, mobilize communities around different issues. One of the issues that we've worked with faith leaders on is healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies, um, which is a critical um, component of ensuring that adolescent girls are able to stay in school, um, ensure that they aren't married early, and that they can access education. And and it is that ability to stay in school and access education um, that will help them thrive economically in the future and, and really benefit the entire community. So sometimes we talk about the role of what we call influential leaders in communities, but we believe that faith leaders are some of the most critical leaders in a community as many as people will listen um, to to their direction. And um, this has been a, a key component of the work that World Vision does around the world. Doing this kind of multi-sectoral programming is never easy, uh, but increasingly we're finding examples of the important outcomes that flow from that. And one of the examples I think of is the PEPFAR's DREAMS program, which stands for determined, resilient, empowered, AIDS-free, mentored, and safe, uh, targeting adolescent girls and young women and trying to prevent HIV infection in that population in high-burden countries. And I know that both of your organizations are involved with different aspects of dreams in different countries. <clears throat> and that's a program that has really tried to do a, a layered approach, bringing in different sectors to address the needs, uh, both the health and economic needs of these young women. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about what you've learned from your engagement in dreams about the importance of these broader multi-sectoral approach to address the needs and reach the outcomes in both health and development areas. David, why don't we start with you? Well, for one thing I would I would point to is a program that we're CARE is doing in Rwanda called the Safe School for Girls program. That's a complementary to the DREAMS efforts and the kind of AIDS education that's core to, to that program. Through Safe Schools for Girls, uh, the intention was to uh, focus on girls who at, are at the lower secondary school level, kind of early high school equivalent of what we would have here, and to help them stay in school by addressing some of the barriers that often lead to dropout things like like early marriage or or early pregnancy. Uh, so the, the the focus of that program is actually about uh, helping them through a savings based model earn income through income-generating activities, through pooling their funds and being able to to make money to address some of the issues that sometimes get in the way of girls staying in school, like having money to, to pay for school uniforms or books or school fees, or simply uh, 
to have enough to eat. And and what we had found is in that many of these communities that that uh, it's not unusual for teenage girls. In fact, some of the girls that we met with when we visited this program a couple of years ago talked to us about about friends of theirs who had had to drop out of school because uh, they had engaged in so-called transactional sex uh, to to earn money for things that they needed in their lives and as a consequence ended up getting pregnant and having to drop out of school. And as a result of that also uh, being exposed to uh, to a variety of sexual transmitted diseases, including AIDS. And so the, the linkage between girls being economically empowered, having access as part of these programs to the kind of health education and awareness uh, that they needed to be able to to understand the risks and and to uh, adapt their behavior accordingly is really critical. And it was it was quite exciting to see these young women who were very uh, not only um, staying in school but felt quite empowered by the fact that they now had financial resources that they could make decisions on their own about their futures and that they had the knowledge and the access to the kind of healthcare and. Uh, facilities that they needed to to be able to to see those decisions through. It's interesting. Some of the research shows that the mere availability of these kinds of health services, particularly access to contraception, in itself helps girls to stay in school and uh, later access economic opportunities uh, in countries around the world. It shows a real impact when they can, their aspirations can be longer term, just knowing that these resources are available. Uh, Margaret, do you want to say a word about your work with the DREAMS program? Well, I would just say our program in Uganda uh, under DREAMS is, is, is a similar type of program that is a, it's a holistic approach to ensuring uh, women and girls' empowerment. And, you know, PEPFAR and also many of our multi-sectoral Food for Peace-funded programs from the U.S. government have been really leading the way in terms of ensuring that it's not only a narrow focus on economic activities that that is part of the design of the overall program, but also ensuring that there's a health component, mobilizing community members to support girls. So girls that have dropped out of school, um, oftentimes teachers in Uganda will go back out to the community and find those girls and work with the families to understand what the challenges were that they faced that resulted in the girls being taken out of school. And when you see the impact of these programs, um, you know, these girls that have been um, brought back to school, for example, um, and and really saved from from being um, um, maybe pushed into child marriage uh, early, it's just it just it's uh it's heartwarming uh and so i think those are the kinds of programs with a multi-sectoral approach that are successful and um have a real impact um on girls so i i just uh, applaud the us government for being able to um being able to uh ensure that those types of programs continue to be funded and um, um they're really having an impact on girls around the world could I could I just follow on that quickly, Janet, and just to to pick up on on some of those points? 
there's a group of organizations that that banded together last year to to uh, to advocate for uh, a holistic approach to to women's entrepreneurship and economic empowerment. Very. Um, Thoughtfully called the Coalition for Women's Entrepreneurship and Economic Empowerment, and and that group of which World Vision and Care are both members, put forward a set of principles to guide policymakers about how to approach the issue in a holistic way. And one of the first is about addressing the broader enabling environment. And to to Margaret's point, not to take a very narrow approach that's just about the narrowly defined economic uh, interventions, obviously as critical as those are, but to address the kind of the broader factors that that uh, constrain women and girls from being able to fully exercise their their ability to participate in the economy, things like uh, issues that that affect them across the life cycle, things about uh, lives free from violence and exploitation, um, having adequate access to health care for their own health and well-being, including knowledge about how to time and space pregnancies, um, access to registration, identification, citizenship documents. In many, in some countries, women are, are not even don't even have legal citizenship in terms of the kind of documentation it requires to be able to participate in the economy. The freedom to associate and to engage in collective bargaining and things like addressing restrictive social norms uh, that that can limit even whether or not a woman can leave her house on her own without a male uh, a male family member unless you address the 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 whole of those things uh, you really are not going to achieve a sustainable uh, impact on women's economic empowerment. And that leads us into an important area for discussion about the growing momentum now around economic empowerment for women in U.S. policy. And that is both the Trump administration and the World Bank, as well as the U.S. Congress. Some of this has been led by Ivanka Trump, who uh, elevated the attention on women's economic empowerment early in the administration, which led to the creation of the Women Entrepreneurs Finance Initiative, what we call WeFi at the World Bank. Uh, but it was also followed in March of this year when the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, OPIC, launched OPIC2X, women's initiative, which is designed to mobilize a billion dollars in capital to invest in women in developing countries. And very importantly, both the House and the Senate have introduced bipartisan bills, the Women's Entrepreneurship and Economic Empowerment Act of 2018, which emphasize the importance of women's economic empowerment for inclusive economic growth, as well as for broader health and development outcomes. David, can you give us a quick update on where the where this legislation stands right now and why this is an important moment for these issues? Thanks, Janet. Yes. In fact, as we begin to talk about this, I want to acknowledge the leadership of, of Chairman Royce and Congresswoman Frankel in the House and Senator Bozeman and, and Ranking Member Cardin in the Senate, who who were the lead sponsors of the legislation in the House and the Senate, respectively. Uh, because of their leadership, uh, we are very close to seeing the bill uh, passed and enacted into law. As you noted, the bill has, in fact, passed the full House. 
a, a parallel measure is working its way through the Senate. It's been calendared for action by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee as soon as they come back into session after the election and hopefully would then soon after go to the full Senate for for quick action and then on to the president for signature. It's an important piece of legislation. It's it's a it's not uh, everything every would would want it to be, but it is it is a significant step forward in putting forward a a comprehensive um, policy around women's entrepreneurship and the economic empowerment for the U.S. government and and would. Uh, make resources available that uh, – or authorize at least resources that that could be uh, aligned in ways that could create greater opportunities for women around the world. So we're excited to see that get over the finish line, hopefully, in the lame duck session and, and, and then soon be signed into law. I think it's important to note that the word health does appear in the bill as True. part of the findings but is – clearly not part of what this bill deals with. Um, and Margaret, do you want to tell us a little bit about why it would be important for whatever new funding comes through this uh, legislation, that it be aligned strategically with the kind of bilateral health programs that the U.S. is already supporting so that the women who are accessing both programs can receive the bidirectional impact? Yeah, I really think that's critical. So once the, the bill is passed and the funding is allocated, it's important, but it's how we use that resource. And and sometimes, you know, we think of things in silos. We think of programs in silos. So we think about an economic development project. We think about a, a PEPFAR, HIV and AIDS project or a health project. But really, those need to complement each other at the field level. So I think it'll be up to... Um, those those leaders within USAID and within the missions at the field level to be able to program that strategically through partners um, in order to have the greatest impact. Standalone projects, as I said earlier, just don't, they aren't as effective. You can't measure the impact on young women and girls um, as as much as if they were linked to a health, so an economic uh, development pro- project needs absolutely needs to be linked to a health, uh, health maternal child and health uh, program, um, needs to be linked to strategic uh, project activities that promote healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies. Uh, this is this is how we will succeed uh, in our programming and, and again, sh- demonstrate impact for girls. I, I was just going to quickly follow on to say there is an important piece of the legislation that would require a thoughtful gender analysis uh, for any of the programs to be enacted in the field. And that is, as Margaret has said, critical to the success of the program to understand really what are the specific barriers that for any particular group of women in a particular context uh, that would keep them from being able to really fully realize the the opportunities that are available to them and that is uh, that's one of for us i think one of the most exciting parts of the legislation that that it would be in that sense a a broad and thoughtful look at understanding all of the elements that need to go into making a program successful. And this is a moment, as we know, that USAID is focused on a new strategy to help countries solve their own development challenges, known as the journey to self-reliance. 
But we're also aware that this is a polarized time in Washington, that issues particularly around family planning are uh, especially polarizing in this environment. Can you describe why these issues, as we've been discussing them, fit into any country's journey to self-reliance? Why should these be pillars of a journey to self-reliance? Well, I I think, um, you know, we've been talking about some very basic concepts here. One is that um, uh, women are healthy, that young girls have the ability to go to school, that um, that we address issues that create barriers for girls um, and women to succeed. I think we all know that when women are economically empowered and, and healthy, their families and their households are healthier, their communities are healthier and more successful. That's something we should care about in every community around the world. So, um, you know, it's important that, that our, our the U.S. government and USAID continue to um, fund this type of programming around the world so that we can have healthier communities, stronger, more economically empowered communities. And it will take um, um, educated uh, f- women in the community to make that happen. Melinda Gates once said that no country in the last 50 years has emerged from poverty without expanding access to contraceptives. So should that fit in the journey to self-reliance? I think it has to, Janet. It, 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 it's a really a virtuous cycle that if, if in fact, uh, a, if you look across the lifetime of a, of, uh, a woman as a girl, if, if a woman has access to education and adequate health care, uh, as she gets older, then is able to, to stay in school to learn the basic kind of skills that anyone needs to be successful in in the marketplace, to postpone marriage and pregnancy, uh, to then be able to move on to make decisions and in adulthood about when and whom to marry and and if and when and how many children to have, uh, and to be able to then get access to uh, the uh, the kind of financial services that that any business person would need to to be a success, and and then to be in a position to be able to care for her own children when she decides to have them, uh, that is a cycle that can just goes onward and upward over time and can really fuel the path to self reliance that uh, that Administrator Green has been talking about. This is, as we had discussed earlier, an important moment for U.S. policy. Uh, and I wonder if we could take a few minutes to talk about what you, what's your message to the U.S. Congress? What's your message to the Trump administration about why the momentum on economic empowerment is critical but cannot omit the dimension of access to women's health services? I would say that... Uh we need to ensure that um, programs are de- so in order to use those resources, uh, make sure that those programs are designed appropriately and that they are based on evidence and research that ensures we use the most effective uh, approaches 
that um, have been proven and tested. And the programs that USAID funds and designs should be of the highest quality. I, and I would just, I would just echo Margaret uh, on the, on a, taking an evidence based approach about what actually works. And certainly, uh, I, I think for all of us who've been doing this kind of work, uh, we have evidence to show that uh, if you're really serious about making a lasting improvement in women's economic situation, that you have to address women in a holistic way. And I think it makes the world uh, a safer place. It makes the world uh, a better place. And we need to push back against any efforts to um, cut foreign assistance in terms of of health programming or food security programming, that um, those cuts truly do impact people around the world and and make the world uh, a more difficult place for all of us to live. Thank you so much. This has been a rich and interesting discussion, and I look forward to continuing to hear from you about your work in this area through your organizations and the other coalitions you're involved in. Uh, but I think it's a important moment for us to be looking at women's economic empowerment in these broader terms and looking at the opportunities to be linking economic empowerment programs with the critical women's health programs on family planning, on HIV, on maternal health that underpin women's ability to participate in these economic opportunities and to access new training and financing and other important interventions. So thank you to the audience for joining us for the Take is Directed podcast. As always, we invite you to subscribe to Take is Directed so that you never miss our latest episode. For more information on our upcoming events and recent publications, please visit the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center program page.